Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, we'll read verses 21 to 40. Focusing on the song and the blessing of Simeon to Mary and Joseph. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we open your word to the gospel, to the, the area of good news, a good news to your people, and we pray that we would see the truth of that good news, the various nuances of it, what it means to the world. And we ask, Lord, that it would find in us a receptive heart, that you would speak and bless the words that are given, that they would be true, and you would give strength to the one who speaks and accuracy and protection of your word, for when truly proclaimed, your word preached is the word of God, your very word to us. We stand in awe of this mystery, and we pray, Lord, ready to receive it, that we would. We ask this in your name. Amen. Luke 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Ascends our reading this morning, and may God bless it to our lives. Awaiting consolation. Awaiting consolation. That's who we come to in this text Two such saints, 
This man, Simeon, and this prophetess, Anna, who at the direction of the Lord, even through the Holy Spirit's revelation to a man, and through the simple devotion of the prophetess Anna, who was always in the presence of the temple, awaiting that redemption, awaiting this consolation, here they were, and these saints recognized the truth of the one put before him, before them, but awaiting consolation. We all know what it's like to await something, await a desire. We know what it's like to, to look forward to that vacation. We know what it's like to count on the weeks when, when we'll go on that trip or to the end of school or to that break, to these things that we just are awaiting for. Now, these are lower-level weights, and yet we see even how much they can dominate our lives, where it's, we, we even direct so much of our attention to what's coming and because of what's coming, it transforms our present ex- ex- circumstance and experience and decision-making. We also know, and some of us more than others, especially those who've borne much grief, those who are, have been long on this earth, know what it's like to await a sort of consolation, a consolation of being brought to heaven that comes through a natural death. That starts getting closer to, I think, what Simeon and Anna have been awaiting for, but, but not quite. Not quite because so often with that, that hope of release in death is the mourning that th- this world has just has, has beat us down. We're, we're, we're ready to depart. The sorrows have mounted up our, our lives grow old and we grow tired and we're ready to depart. But but this waiting, very similar in senses, but a bit different, is is a, a just longing to see something. A longing to behold, a longing to witness, to see salvation, to see the consolation of Israel. We understand that and we see that. We see these two saints who await it, awaiting for what is consolation. It's peace, it's comfort, it's encouragement, it's help, it's deliverance. And we see how much these two dear saints devoted their entire life to this pursuit. Their lives were characterized by this. Simeon himself... The text, you notice, doesn't actually say how old he was. We could assume, likely, that he was older from what he says, but we don't know that. The text actually doesn't say that Simeon was old, but it does say upon seeing the consolation of Israel in his very arms that he praises the Lord and says, I've done enough. My life is complete. What a mark of faith. What a mark of faith to be presented with the Savior, the Deliverer, and count your life as fully fulfilled in joy to see it and to know it. You know, we, we, we can learn from this, brothers and sisters. We can learn from what these saints did as they awaited their own appearing of their Messiah. And we come today to the last of what we've been calling the Canticles of Advent. There can be five, if you count Elizabeth's blessing in the beginning. We didn't look at that, but we went through the other four. Mary's song, Zechariah's song, the angel's chorus, and now the final one, the final canticle in Simeon. And you would almost think, well, how can you top the angel's chorus? And that's probably not even the best way to think of it. It's not as if the scripture's presenting it, well, who's his best of the songs? But it is, in fact, interesting that the final infancy song, blessing, even prophecy that comes to on Jesus himself in his birth and infancy narrative is from a very simple man. Notice how the text describes him. Righteous and devout, 
Can't think of two better descriptions, can you? And then this final capstone to the the songs and blessings and prophecies to Jesus himself is delivered simply by a follower of the Lord who was was urgent in his following, zealous in his seeking the consolation of Israel and desire to see it happen, who had been revealed to him earlier that he would see it before he died. And you almost get the sense from the text, the tone of the text, that's, that's what was keeping him going, that's all he needed. And to see it, his life is fulfilled. And he delivers this song and this truth that Israel's consolation means the world's salvation and necessary division, things of great joy, but coming at a cost. And that's what this, this text reveals. Israel's consolation means the world's salvation and necessary division, things of great joy, but coming at a cost. You see, there's mixed emotions in this song and in this blessing. We see first great joy, that's evident. Simeon's joy stems from his witnessing of the coming, the consolation of Israel, the wonder at Gentile inclusion, the glorification of Israel. These are all joyous things, and so joy is so present in this blessing, in this song. We also see a sober recognition that comes when he blesses Mary and Joseph and particularly directs his words to Mary. That the truth of a coming great division revealing genuine saints to rise from the false unbelievers who are to fall. So there's this sober recognition of what this means, of what the coming of this child means to Israel itself. And there's foreshadowed sorrow at the price to be paid for these monumental events. As Simeon tells Mary, this foreshadowed sorrow, this is going to pierce your heart. So there's joy mixed with recognition, mixed with sorrow, a rather good description of Jesus' life and ministry. So we look first at Simeon's song of joy in verses 25 to 32. This devout man waiting for the consolation is described as an exemplary saint, spiritually sensitive, a God-fearer. I want to dig a little deeper and again to what that consolation means. What is this consolation that he's been waiting for? It's referring to a hope of deliverance. There's profound hope in this consolation. It's waiting for help, for deliverance. It's hope, it's waiting for being consoled, comforted, encouraged. In fact, the same word used here when Simeon says that, they, he was, that it was said of him he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, it's the word that from which we get paraclete. Paraclete's the word that Jesus uses to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit who would come to be our helper, our comforter, our, our enlivener. The Holy Spirit is described in this term. And so to say he's awaiting for this, this, this paraclete, of Israel, this time is to await the time of deliverance, of fulfillment, the time of Isaiah, Isaiah's 40, and, and the great joy that would come in comforting of God to his people. This is what he awaits and he desires to see. He's in essence waiting for the arrival of messianic hope and all that it entails, all that it means, and so he awaits this. This gives you a window into just how much knowledge an Old Testament saint could have through the working of the Holy Spirit and what he, he reveals to them, things that are revealed first here that haven't yet come to pass, that sorrow hasn't entered the narrative yet, hasn't entered the songs of those who have been praising the Lord 
There hasn't been so much of a foreshadowed division of the people of Israel itself, and yet he declares that and takes this child in his arms, Jesus, remember the name meaning Savior, quite evident, the angel revealed that this is to be his name, Jesus, Savior. He takes Savior into his arms. He's not disappointed. He's exuberant. And here's his song, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Notice already the consolation, the comfort, the joy, the encouragement, deliverance of Israel has already begun with this man. His heart is consoled. He has seen the salvation and redemption. It has already taken place. He can now depart in peace. His eyes have seen the salvation. What faith? What faith to say that of a helpless infant in your arms? And yet he says it because he knows it. It's been revealed. And he trusts. He trusts that this is the one to deliver. And God's deliverance can't be thwarted. And so he's seen the salvation already. It's happened. What faith? Holding this deliverer in his arms. But notice the message, verses 31 and 32, salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then this imagery, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is shocking. This is shocking how clearly he states it. It's almost matter of fact. It's like almost assumed to be true that everyone should know this, that this child coming, this is the, the light of revelation to the nations. The nations, the ones imprisoning the people. The Gentiles themselves, he, he says this. At this time, the religious leaders, the, the, the pious Israelite, you could say, had no thought or care for the Gentiles and nations. It was all about Israel. It was all about Israel's redemption. It was about overthrowing the nations and the Gentiles. It was about being, being the kingdom of David to go out and conquer the world and set up the new nation. No, this is the Savior, this deliverer is a light of revelation to them. Light conveys illumination. Revelation conveys understanding. This will be revealed to them. They'll all of a sudden see the coming of this, this child changes the world itself so that all will see, all will know, all will experience light. But then notice what he says after that. And it's for glory to your people, Israel. We have this playing, this light and this glory, and the light and revelation comes to the Gentiles, and that itself is the very glory of Israel. Salvation is described as light. Now, certainly, light comes to all. It's not saying that the light and illumination and revelation doesn't come to God's people either. In chapter 1, in verses 78 and 79, Luke's already described the Messiah as light that comes to the nation of Israel. Light is to be brought to them. And since light comes in revelation, glory results. In Acts 26, 22, and 23, light is portrayed as coming to both Jews and Gentiles. So it's not to, to contrast the two as if Israel doesn't receive light and illumination and revelation. They do. But here's the point. The coming of Jesus and this, this, this Savior means the incorporation and light coming to the nations, and that itself is the glory, the vindication of Israel. The nations will come to those who possess salvation. 
the nation of Israel. This is a, a common theme. Isaiah 61 to 3 says this Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 60 says that. Isaiah 46.13 says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The glory of Israel is in the salvation that comes through her. The fulfillment of the covenants that through this people and Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. Here's, here it is. They will see the light that shines from the glory of the Lord present in his very people. And Simeon rejoices to see this. But see, it's not a rejoicing of exclusion. It's not the rejoicing that Israel's so great and the nations will see it and be de defeated. It's not that. It's Israel's very glory is that through them comes the salvation of the world. Through the promises given to their forefathers, through deliverance of a Jew to the Jews comes salvation to the world itself. And that was always God's plan, that the seed of the woman would be a chosen race and would ultimately produce the very seed of the woman, Christ himself, who through that covenant and the promises given to that chosen race and line of salvation that Genesis provides, traces all the way through. You see, think of Ruth and the genealogy at the end of Ruth that provides it through David and all the genealogies that follow. We're going to get to that shortly in Luke. It goes all the way to Christ. Salvation comes through the people of the Lord. Romans 9, 4, and 5, we receive a New Testament example of that. Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Simeon sees this. Simeon's song expresses that joy, the nation's vindication, the nation's deliverance, the nation's light has come and will be a light of revelation to all, to the Gentiles included. Simeon's songs bears many repetitions of the songs that have come before it. God is acting for his people. That's been present in all the songs. He's saving them according to his plan and promise. That's been in all the songs. But Simeon adds this Gentile inclusion as well as this coming division. The regal, Davidic, Messiah, the Savior, servant, has come to redeem more than the nation of Israel. He's come for the world. And for the first time, Simeon connects this coming Messiah to that servant of Isaiah 40 through 66. That servant that comes and suffers. That servant that comes and brings light. That servant that comes and brings deliverance. It's a very important song, very important few verses that Simeon proclaims, the simple man, not one of the religious leaders, not the high priest, not even a priest. We don't read anything great about him, and he's the one to deliver this great message. The very glory of Israel and the world has come, and he holds him in his hands. So this is Simeon's song of joy. 
But now we see Simeon's mysterious blessing. Simeon's mysterious blessing in verses 33 and 30, through 35. We could call this his thought-provoking message, his thought-provoking blessing, because it's mysterious. You have to wonder at it. You marvel at it, for what does this mean after he declares such wonderful things? And then this blessing he gives, which we read, and, and Simeon blessed them, and then turns his attention directly to Mary, to Mary, his mother. You'll notice in the Gospels, Jesus, Mary is always called the mother of Jesus. It always is referred to like that. There's always that connection to Mary, the woman, and to her seed, the son, Jesus. He says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's not entirely encouraging, is it? You'd almost want to say, uh, you can take that blessing back. What kind of blessing is that? You're, you're, you're blessing us, and then now you direct these words to me, and you describe a division of the people God is coming to save? And then you describe a sword piercing my heart from this? Do, do, what, what, what's the expectation? Is Mary supposed to rejoice? How is she supposed to take that? Well, it is ultimately a a prophetic indication of what is to come. And it contains, just as, is, as we said earlier, it contains joy, contains foreshadowed sorrow, contains somber recognition of what is to come. But this is important for us to know. It's important. If it's important for Mary to know, it's important for us to know and to understand this, that Christ is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel, that Christ, that the Son is a sign. What is he a sign of? He's a sign of that falling and rising. And don't forget that prepositional phrase, in Israel, among God's chosen people. You mean it's not wholesale? You mean the coming of the, the judge and the deliverer, the Savior, doesn't mean all are incorporated into this? The nation itself will be divided? Yes. That's exactly what that means. And that's why it's so important. There'll be a great divide. Not all are included that we're the children of Abraham. Not enough. Not good enough. We were circumcised. Still not good enough. This sign is going to be a cornerstone a stumbling block. You know, you can think of it, a, a stone that's there, that's sunk and, and is a foundation. It's one who are aware of it and who revealed the purpose of that cornerstone to be built upon it. But to those who are unaware of this, it's a sign, it's a stone in which they trip and fall. That's what this Savior will do. Some are going to trip right on over him. Some are going to be built upon him, and that's what Simeon is saying, that imagery of the sign, that imagery that connects to so many portions of Isaiah about a stone, and in the New Testament describes the same thing, a stone that's there to either rise up and be built upon, or to fall over and trip over. 
Jesus' ministry would not be one-dimensional. Jesus' ministry would be one that demands the reckoning. And here it is. And you see how, how simultaneously, that's something to rejoice in. It is something to rejoice in, even though we recognize that somberness, that there is a division, but we rejoice in that it's revealed, that we, we know that we've been revealed, hey, here's the cornerstone, and here it's laid, and this is the sign, and you either be built upon it, or you trip over it to your destruction. You will either rise, or you will fall. That's very good news to know. When there's something on the stairs and you're carrying a burden, I remember this. I, I was playing as a young child and I, I, there were tracks that I could run Hot Wheels cars down the stairs. And boy, they could go fast. They'd just go zipping down the thing. And so I left them there. I thought, well, I'm going to come back to this. And my mom, who was carrying a basket of, of clothes, couldn't see that. And of course, you have a very slick track on the stairs. And what you can imagine what would happen. She went right down the stairs because she couldn't see that. How, much, how great a revelation would it have been if I would have said, Hey, Mom, just so you know, I left these things on the stairs. Be careful of them, or other, you might trip and fall. You see what I'm saying, you see this point. It is loving and great news. It is joyful news to know that the reckoning has come, and be aware of it, and be built upon it, and repent. That'll be John's message that's upcoming. Repent, for the kingdom is here. And that, at the same time, it is one of sadness and sorrow to know that there is those who will trip, those who will fall. And we need to see that same lesson. We need to know that you're not saved because you're a child of Abraham. In a figurative or literal sense, you're not saved because of that. And you're not saved because you're a church member. And you're not saved because you're baptized. And you're not saved because you think of yourself as a Christian. And you're not saved because you see yourself as a keeper of the law. How much of a problem it was in that day? We keep the law. We're ceremonial pure. That rich young ruler who will come to Jesus, I've kept the law from my birth. Not enough. There's only one way. And that's to see the point of the sign that Jesus is. To be built upon him, to be attached to this cornerstone, the falling and rising of life itself. And it's tremendous what happens. Think of the falling and rising that takes place. Those to rise are the poor in spirit, the God-fearers who so often in God's word are truly the poorest of the poor, who are truly the outcasts of society. The Gospels all show this, the raising up of the sinners and tax collectors and those who were not self-righteous and the falling down of, of who? The priests and chief priests, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were it. They were the leaders. They're the lawyers. They're the ones who know it all. And so many of them would fall. And there's a point in that. What's the point? Those to rise, it's not on your understanding and it's not on your law-keeping. It's on the humility and the way you fear the Lord and trust only in Him. There's no self-righteousness there. There's no thinking you got salvation cornered or you just belong to it. It's those who know they don't and turn to this sign and don't trip over it. This is why it's important for us to know those who reject Jesus are headed for a fall. Those who accept this Savior are headed for a rising. 
And notice as well, the, the, the heart itself will be revealed. Christ's coming peels us open, and it peels us to, to reveal what's in your heart. Again, something that's to be recognized rather somberly, and yet something that needs to happen, and thus we have great joy to reveal what's in your heart. And many hearts will be revealed in God's people. They will see who is for me and who is against me. As the Gospel of John would say, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not recognize him. And Jesus is in the very steps of Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah when he's commissioned? The Lord basically tells him, you're going to have this word, but no one's going to listen to you. Hearing you, they won't hear. Seeing you, they won't believe. And that will happen as well. Hearts will be revealed to some. He will be such a stumbling block, such a sign to be opposed, such an offense that they deem so rancid that they're willing to release a murderer just so that they can get rid of this guy. They're willing to nitpick everything about him. They're willing to to break God's law and bow to false witnesses at his trial and break the thing that they think they have so licked and so cornered just to get rid of him. The division that would come Here's one who would divide the nation, and yet here is one in Simeon who is the one to rise. And we see another one of them in Anna, one of these poor to rise up. Anna's faithful witness, that's our third point, in verses 36 to 39. In verse 36, the text moves to this prophetess Anna. Not a lot is provided. There's a very short bio. We, we see her history She's the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We don't know anything about him, and it's very obscure tribe. She's pretty much a nobody from nowhere, and, and the very fact that she was a woman means that she couldn't serve in the offices there. We know she wasn't an, an office bearer of any kind. That's not according to God's law. She's described as a prophetess, one who was in the temple throughout her whole life. Now, that doesn't mean that she slept there. That wasn't allowed, but it means all of her waking time, all of her life was spent there, and she was apparently a waiting for the redemption of Israel, very similar to what Simeon himself was doing. But the text also highlights something else. This lady is old. She's old. Now, some will debate this. Some will say, well, she's 84. I'm more of the opinion that she's actually in her low 100s. And here's how you might get there. The following line of thought is this. Jewish girls were generally married around 14 years of age. And she was married, and then you read of seven years of marriage. And many commentators will say that actually the 84 years is better understood for how long she was devoted to the work of the Lord in the temple. And so when you add that all up, you reach the age of 105. Ultimately, it's not as if we need to, to quibble over was she 84 or 105. No, the text is saying this, was, this, this lady was old. And she did this year after year after year. This was her life's pursuit. She also stands as a second witness here. So Simeon's the first witness at the temple. She's the second. And by two witnesses, it's established by the law who he is. We also see a representation of those who've not only sung of Christ, but have now witnessed to him. 
You have all those songs. You have, a, you have one who is a priest in Zechariah. You have the mother of, of, of Jesus herself in Mary. You have an angelic witness of the hosts of heaven who come, and now you have, and you have the shepherds as well. I can't forget them. The shepherds in the fields who are revealing who this is. And now you have an old man and an old woman from all the, the different elements of society, witnesses from the city, from the country, from heaven itself, in the temple, in, in the fields, everywhere, is this proclaimed? It's a it's a it's it's a wide recognition of who this child is. And the text says, "What happened?" Anna represents those the the physically and spiritually hungry, and she comes and she praises and she sings and she witnesses to Jesus' identity, and she goes to the other uh, the others who were awaiting for the redemption of Israel, and she reveals to them what she has seen. It probably was very easy for her to do since she was acquainted with everyone there. And she brings a witness, the second witness to Jesus' identity, this poor woman to rise. Again, you see what's happening. You see the division already taking place. And the Son of God comes to the house of God who is there to recognize him. Well, it's these, these devout, righteous saints who have waited for this their whole life. J.C. Ryle gives us a good point. I want to read a quote from him into what we're supposed to take from that. He says, Let us learn a lesson from these good people. If they, with so few helps and so many discouragements, lived such a life of faith, how much more ought we, with a finished Bible and a full gospel, let us strive like them to walk by faith and look forward. The second advent of Christ is yet to come. The complete redemption of this earth from sin and Satan and the curse is yet to take place. Let us declare plainly by our lives and conduct that for this second advent we look and long. We may be sure that the highest style of Christianity, even now, is to wait for redemption and to love the Lord's appearing. If I could apply it very simply, it's that we are to love the Lord's appearing. And it's that we're to understand it. That's the point of this text. It's to, it, it's to love his appearing and to understand what it means. To understand the coming sorrow. For now you have linked just that cost that it will take, this division and this sign will be stumbling and rising and then more. And Mary, this sword will pierce your own heart. The one to cause this, this, this little child little child that is creating this ruckus in the temple today. There's going to be a far more ruckus he's going to create. And through this, and everything that takes place, is profound sorrow, especially to you. Especially to you as you will see him rejected. You will see him spurned. You'll see him crucified and killed. Somberness and sorrow... Israel's consolation means the world's salvation and necessary division, things of great, great joy, but coming at a cost. And the point we take of it is we are to love his appearing. We're not to miss the sign. We also, as Ryle says in his quote, we are to await his appearing with the same type of devotion, the same earnestness, that it is the structure of our life. It is our life's pursuit. 
And that doesn't mean that, oh, you, you need to try to cling to the world just so long so that you can see Christ come again. That's not the point. The point is that we are living towards his kingdom, ultimately towards his appearing. That's what we cling to. That's what we love. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Sort of an interesting biblical concept, isn't it? Loving the appearing of the Lord. That means a whole lot more than sight. Saw him. It means you love the consolation, all of it, the comfort and the encouragement, the hope and the peace, the deliverance, the help. That's your life's pursuit, and that's why it matters. Why does this matter? The gospel cuts. The gospel cuts. And we're not supposed to soften that message. And we're supposed to understand it. We're supposed to to understand and not be surprised when we see those who fall, and we see those who rise, and it's even against our own expectations. We're supposed to understand that those who will see this will those who will be cut by the gospel itself, either to their rising up or towards their destruction, but it's going to happen. We're to be those who, in light of that truth, love the appearing of the Lord and don't miss the sign that he brings. The gospel cuts, it causes a scandal. The gospel's reveal, even this would reveal, it, it demands a recognition, it would separate families, it would separate nations and peoples, it would cause strife and all these divisions, but for a purpose and a point. It's not all bad, okay? It's not that we're left with sorrow, because what? were they waiting for? And what causes Simeon's joy and Anna's joy? Consolation. Redemption. Though we know this, what it means is that you won't always be those to see the division. You won't always be those who've been hurt by this. The sword that causes the pain to marry that would cause division in the world itself won't always be there in that way. We will be comforted by the very comforter himself. The consolation, that's where we place our hope. We know all that's happening and we see what he's doing, but hold on to that hope. This sign that God gives to us through Christ is to show us what we're to do in believing in him, but it gives us that hope to cling to that you are consoled and will be consoled in him and him alone. Amen. Let's go before our great comforter. Father in heaven, we see this message of the gospel of signs of division and of separation, but a message of hope a message of joy that is a light to all peoples, that is glory to your people, that is our own glory and our own vindication and is our, indeed, consolation and our comfort and joy and help. We pray that we would not miss the sign that your people and those here would be those to rise on it, to be built on the cornerstone, to not trip over it, to not fall. 
We rejoice in this message, and we pray that we would remain faithful, and our prayer is not, not hanging on our strength, but in your promises and faithfulness to us. We ask this in your great name.